There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most probably listening through a pair of headphones, which means I have the perfect sponsor with the perfect product for you. It's Studio, and they want to revolutionize the way people see headphones. Generally, fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality and the high-tech ones are bulky and not design-orientated. Studio bridge that gap while emphasizing sleek, modern Scandinavian design. To get a 15% discount on any of their wares, go to studiosweden.com, which is spelled S-U-D-I-O Sweden.com, and simply put in the code DTD when purchasing a pair of headphones. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great music. Today, we speak to David Murray, the director of the American Speech Writers Association, about moving speeches and oratory. say the number of occasions uh, when a good speech is needed or, or, or when people want to sit down and listen to a good speech, those occasions might be a little fewer, but much more important uh, is the gravitas of a speech, is the moment of a speech. In a world of tweets, in a world where you know these things come in one ear and out the other, how many tweets have you read and remembered? How many tweets have you read versus how many you've remembered? The arresting, physical, emotional uh, experience of being in an audience, uh, looking a speaker in the eye, watching the speaker uh, say what he or she has to say with feeling, uh, with with eye contact or not, whether that person's fidgeting with, with his or her hands or not, the feeling that you get of being in an audience where you're sitting next to someone who's also experiencing that, the mood in the room, this physical, this physical communal experience is much more profound, uh, I think, uh, these days because we're so used to this flat online experience where it's just the words. Um, a speech is a is a much more social and uh, holistic, physical and emotional experience, uh, and it, and it, it it sticks in the intellect and in the and in the emotions much longer uh, 
uh, if it's genuine, then any anything that could be expressed uh, on Twitter, on the internet, or even in a YouTube video. You mentioned in your answer there the audience. And I suppose a good speech is a two-way conversation, isn't it? It is not just the words that you use. It is how receptive, how emotional that, that audience is. Um, can you give us one, one example of a speech hitting the right audience at the right time? Well, I can. I mean, well, first of all, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, tell, I tell speech writers that your speech is landing uh, not when the speak, not when the audience is gazing up adoringly at the speaker, but when you know it's landed when when two audience members look at each other, because that's when the, that's when communication starts happening. That's when the special thing that happens with speeches uh, start happening. The writer Ian Fraser talks about um, the "I Have a Dream" speech, and he he says that if you uh, study the film of it, and I've done this myself, um, he he compares it to being on a driving range. Uh, you're hitting you're hitting balls on a golf driving range, and you're hitting them out there. And normally they just bounce. You hit them, and they hit the ground, and they just bounce and roll. But every once in a while, a ball will land on another ball, and that'll hit another ball, and that'll hit another ball. And if you if you look at the audience during the "I Have a Dream" speech, you can actually see them sort of reacting to one another and almost bouncing off one another. Something's happening between them. Somebody said that uh, a novel, a great novel, will, will break the ice uh, within us. And, uh, and, and someone, a speechwriter, a friend of mine, says that a great speech can really break the ice that's between us. Why have you made a career out of being um, not only interested but fascinated by by the world of professional speech giving? Um, it's such a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm the son of two writers, so I'm the son of, uh, uh, of a novelist. My mother was a novelist. Uh, my, my father was, was an advertising copywriter and creative director and, and also a writer. Um, and so, I've, you know, in some ways I just kind of went into the family business of writing but early on in my career, I, I happened to work on this this little newsletter called Speechwriter's Newsletter, um, and just happened to be one of my early career assignments. I wound up doing a lot of other kinds of journalism and other kinds of writing, but I I, I never completely lost touch with this this crowd of speechwriters. Um, you know, I, I love I love communication in general. I love public speaking when it's in the you know. Uh, Fairly rare moments uh, when it really and truly. Why you have to tell me why you love public speeches, speech giving? Because for the most part, that's one of our greatest fears as an adult that we have to stand up in front of a group of people and address them. Well, I hate I hate speaking in public. Oh, <laughs> I hate it, and I and I hate. Uh, I actually don't like the process of of writing speeches for others. I, I joke that I. I hate speech writing so much that I started the Speechwriters Association just so I could get out of doing it myself. Public speaking to me is is wonderful when you have a speaker who has something truly unique to say to a certain audience at a certain time that only that speaker could could possibly say. Those times are few and far between for every speaker. Uh, those few times are, are few and far between for, for audiences. Those you can't even control, always control all those moments. And I think we're going to talk about a speech in a little bit where those moments, those circumstances come together. Most speeches, 
that you go to and most speeches that people end up delivering are, cere- are basically ceremonies. They are not moments of communication. Uh, the speaker was, ad- was, was invited to give the commencement address. Uh, the speaker, the big important speaker accepted the invitation. The big important speaker is going to come and say the expected things. That is not truly a communication moment. That is not truly something where that changes human beings or that galvanizes uh, audiences. Those are cere- those are basically ceremonial uh, events. What I love are the rare moments uh, when history comes together, when moments come together, when when speakers have something to say to, to audiences that need to hear it, and magic happens. And that that to me is is pretty much. Uh, as close to to human religion as, as I ever as I ever come. And so I have this jam session uh, that I that I take around the world. It's it's basically about ten excerpts from great speeches, um, some of them obscure, some of them famous. And I I've shown these excerpts to, to audiences all around the world at the United Nations in Europe all over the place. And almost every single time uh, I show these uh, speeches, I there are moments. Uh, in which my eyes fill with tears and they fill with tears. I'm, I'm there with a bunch of speechwriters, with a bunch of communicators who are trying desperately every time they write a speech to make a, to make a moment, to make a, to galvanize an audience, to bring people together, uh, to say something that changes something or, or that does some good. And for us to actually witness this happening uh, together it's just a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful vocation for me. The people who, who do it, uh, who, who try to do it on behalf of the leaders of the world who are, who are my customers, I love these people. Tell me about the circumstances of Robert F. Kennedy's speech on the assassination of Martin Luther King. Why was that speech note perfect? Why have you chosen it? for us as our not piece of music this week but as our let's say our recording to listen to well it, it has it has some music to it it has some music uh it has musicality in some ways uh although it is not anything like a perfect speech uh and this this uh happened almost 50 years ago to this day it's uh it, it happened uh, on april 4th 1968 martin luther king robert f kennedy was campaigning for president he was uh just having a day of campaigning. He had just spoken at Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. And as he's getting on the plane to go to Indianapolis, where he's going to give a speech in the inner city, um, he learns that Martin Luther King has been shot in Memphis. And then he gets on the plane and he's on the plane and he gets off. And when he gets off in Indianapolis, his advisors inform him that King has indeed died of his wounds. The mayor of Indianapolis says cities are already kind of we're worried about unrest and and we we had your police detail will not follow you into this neighborhood it was it was a tough neighborhood on the north side of indianapolis and he was basically told don't go in there and he easily could have said right i won't go in there i'm going to cancel this campaign appearance uh in honor of of king but he decided he he wanted to go in there And, and we don't really have him on record saying exactly why he decided to do that but he he went in there anyway and he climbs onto the bed of a like a flatbed truck to give his speech, uh, and it's 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 sort of and it's dark out. Um, and he, you actually hear him as the recording begins. You hear him say, "Do they know about Martin Luther King?" 
And he's told, as he's about to make this speech, that no, a lot of them, the people don't know that these are African-American people in the middle of north side of Indianapolis, and they don't know. And so he's got to tell the news to them. And then he's got to somehow contend with this situation uh, rhetorically. And he's got some notes in his hand uh, that he's kind of scrawled, I think, either on the plane or in the car on the way to the, to the uh, speech. But he doesn't really look at him. He's just kind of holding them back and forth in his hand. And he looks, he looks so frail. You, there's a YouTube video. You can see it. He looks frail. He looks vulnerable. And he st- sort of starts with a quavering voice. And he sounds like he's kind of... He's kind of wandering around a little bit rhetorically, but at some point he finds his voice. He he's, he realizes that you know he 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 shares this feeling because he at some point he says you know I had a member of my family killed, and you'll you'll hear it in the speech. The speech is clumsy because it's not rehearsed. Um, there are moments when he seems to be losing track, but then he really and truly finds his voice, and um, and so he gives his speech, and people are people are quiet for it. Uh, he calls for he calls for peace, and he calls for understanding. It, it's a fact that Indianapolis, about a hundred cities burned that that night or over the next couple of days, and Indianapolis was was sort of the one major American city that didn't. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization. Black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand 
to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, I, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. I've since been down there because I'm writing a piece for the 50th anniversary of this. And I was down um, at the spot uh, recently and I spoke um, to an African-American guy who was about 28 years old at that time. And he, t he had a different perspective on it. I, I always, I've always thought it sounded a little pat that Kennedy gave this speech. People simply went home peacefully. Um, certainly, you know, only a tiny fraction of the African-American population was at that speech. And I spoke with a guy who was not at that speech, and he, he kind of had a different, a different impression of it. And he, and he actually hadn't heard the speech in total until I asked him to listen to it. And he, he, he acknowledged uh, it's, a pretty lovely, it's a pretty lovely speech. And, and it's, but it's one of those moments where, you know, the, the moment happened. You can't control that moment. Whatever speech he was going to give in that neighborhood would have been completely forgettable. Uh, if the circumstances hadn't have conspired to make that speech so meaningful. And so today there's a wonderful um, uh, memorial there that shows um, King and Kennedy sort of reaching out to, to one another. And of course, Kennedy was killed uh, two months uh, after giving that speech almost to the day. You talked about the immediate reaction to to that speech and then it's wider historical context how can we judge which is more important is it the immediacy that the audience takes away from it or actually is it the legacy of not necessarily just that speech we can start with that one but with speeches in general 
Right. Well, it depends. I guess it depends on the speech. I mean, the Gettysburg Address famously was not uh, very well remembered at all. And, and, and Lincoln actually begins the Gettysburg Address by saying that this speech will be little remembered. It was it was overshadowed by a much longer speech. Uh, it, w- it wasn't really reported on very, very much. And uh and nobody nobody took much note of it, but it's carved on the walls of the, of the Lincoln Memorial, and it's it's carved in the it's kind of part of our American Constitution. Um, so, and, and I think that the same has been kind of true of the of the Kennedy speech in Indianapolis. Um, I think the same is true of a lot of of great speeches, but you know, those are the speeches we know about because they lasted they lasted forever. Um, and and that and that was the point that I made to the to the guy who sort of. Wanted to, he sort of discounted the importance of the, that Kennedy speech at the moment. Um, that speech has been has been viewed and studied and listened to um, many, many, many times since then. And it and it's a you know it's a it's a it's something that that remembers the moment and that that conveys a uh, feeling that that kind of nothing else nothing else really can. That's that's one of the things that that's great about. Uh, Vital Speeches of the Day magazine. It's a historical record. Somebody actually stood in front of an American audience, and and this was the audience, and this is what they said. And it's a kind of cultural context that you you kind of can't get by reading, for for instance, a newspaper column. You talked about Kennedy's speech, Robert F. Kennedy's speech. Obviously, his brother gave a, a rather famous speech when he was um, asked not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Right. And then also, you know, setting the tone for the 1960s of going, going, putting a man on the moon, you know. So his, his brother is well known for his uh, soaring oratory. And, and, and so is obviously Martin Luther King. It, all, it almost feels like uh, you look back at the 1960s and it, it was a decade of, of great men who could, could deliver great speeches. Very importantly, it was a decade of great tumult. It was a decade when great speeches needed to be given. Um, you know, it's circumstances, dramatic circumstances make for dramatic speeches. And so... Um, that, that's that's to be you know kept in mind as well. Yeah, but also it's a time of idealism, wasn't it? And I wonder, David, is it possible to give a great speech about a topic which isn't idealistic, which which we might actually say is objectionable? Can we separate out the rhetoric from the substance in that regard? Yes, that is a that is a an old uh, question, and it and it's been uh, it's been addressed and, and talked about uh, by the masters and by by uh, a lot of us. Um, a friend of mine uh, in Copenhagen does a, a, a conference session in which he studies the rhetoric of Hitler, and he shows uh, he shows what was powerful about the way. More, more Hitler's speaking style, what he would do. It's haunting to see. Here's my answer. I, I, I told you I have this, this tour that I do where I take speeches around the world. And I try to, many of my audiences, I'm, I, my politics are, are mostly liberal. And, you know, most of my audiences are, I would say they're mostly liberal, but there, there are a, 
there are a lot of conservatives in my audiences. And so I really try hard to find examples that I want to show, examples that move me um, of, of conservative speeches given. Um, and boy, I, 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 I did, I hold on very strongly to Churchill, uh, uh, and, and I, I try to find some, some Ronald Reagan speeches. Um, there, there are some, uh, but I, I find that if I'm trying to, if I'm trying to communicate the beauty of speeches to audiences, I find it very difficult to find enough as many examples as I would like to, to play of conservative speeches. So I think I think the answer is the speeches you love are the speeches you agree with, the speeches that basically make you feel like they were making the world a better place. And I think it's probably unhealthy to like speeches themselves so much or rhetoric itself so much or rhetorical devices so much that you you like that more than you like the idea. Do you, do you know what I mean? Mm. Do you think that it's not by accident that we have a current president of the United States who isn't a great orator after one who was noted as being an incredibly accomplished orator and speechwriter? That it's a case of the pendulum swinging, but then also one of the problems that America is going through is the fact that it's it's so divided. You see the mirror image of that in terms of these two presidents and the way that they speak. Yeah, I, I guess what resonates with me about, about Trump's style versus Obama's style is that Obama's style, I'll get arguments from the right on this, but Obama's style was very verbal. It really was true. As, as much an attempt as, as, as he could make from his political point of view to communicate with the whole country, to try to convince everyone of his argument. What Trump does, and, and to say Trump's not a good orator is to have a, I think is to have a narrow view of what orating is. I think Trump is a great orator um, of a certain kind. It's harder for me to listen to a whole Obama speech with my without my mind wandering than it is for me to, to listen to a Trump speech. Trump is riveting. Trump doesn't uh, – speeches are very improvised and they seem disjointed. But actually you know what he's saying at all times. You know what he's getting at. And, and because he doesn't complete his sentences or his thoughts, you complete his thoughts in your brain. And it's a lot of code and it's a lot of just speaking to – you know. It, I mean, Trump is tr- not, not trying to convince me of anything. He's only trying to convince his base of stuff. But everybody knows what he's getting at. Everybody knows what he means at all times. And um, because of the way he speaks, he's, he's absolutely, I think he's absolutely riveting and, uh, and almost but, but, mesmerizing but, in a but way. By definition, um, but by definition, if he's not speaking to the whole country, he's a bad presidential orator though isn't he he might be a very good political orator but surely the job of the president of the united states is to speak to everybody if not all of the time at least most of the time i i i agree of course but you know part of the part of the purpose of of public speaking we're talking about rhetoric and speaking here and part of the you know a very important part of public speaking is um is preaching to the choir. People don't usually get up and 
and public speak in front of their enemies and try to convince their enemies to love them. Most speeches, most great speeches, um, are people standing in front of audiences that basically agree with them and saying things so strongly and so clearly and so memorably that the audience doesn't forget it, that the audience now has these words in common. They have this feeling in common. That's a hugely important part of, of oration. And that part of oration, whatever you think about Trump, Trump has that. He does that. Those audiences at those rallies are not faking it. They are having a great time. And they are really communing and feeling. They're, they look so happy. And I think they are happy when they're, when they're there. How can somebody learn to persuade with a classic structure of a speech? With the classic structure of the speech? Mm -hmm. What is the classic structure of a well-delivered speech? Um, there is no real classic structure of a speech. Um, there, there are many different structures, uh, and, and it's cool that, that speeches are kind of free-form in that way. At our speech writing courses, we teach a, a, a very workmanlike um, uh, structure called Monroe's Motivated Sequence. Um, and Monroe's Motivated Sequence basically gives you a step-by-step a -step guide to things that you must achieve in a speech. You have to get attention. That's the first step. You have to trigger a need that the listener has. You have to tell the audience you need something or, 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 or at least identify a need that the audience agrees with. Yes, we need this. You have to then give them some way that satisfaction of that need could be achieved. Uh, and you have to sort of paint a visual painting of what that would look like if that problem was solved, that need was fulfilled. And then you need to give them an action, something they can do to help fulfill that need. And that is about as close to kind of an all-purpose speech writing structure, uh, speaking structure, as, as we can give you. And that is really for persuasion. That's for persuading people into action. And as I said, not all speeches are about that. So um, there, there, isn't, there isn't a single structure for a speech. And, uh, and people, speech writers with imagination, are grateful for that. So there isn't necessarily one overarching uh, classical structure. But if you had to give three tips for somebody to give um, uh, a well-received speech, whether it is at, at a wedding or whether it is at a commencement um, speech or, I don't know, standing up in Parliament or, or in Congress or Senate. Three tips, mm -hmm. David, what would those three tips be? Um, I think that what, the, what, the, what an audience wants to know, what, what, what makes an audience sit up and not, and not stop listening is they want to know why you, why are you giving this speech? Why isn't the next minister of parliament or the other best man giving this speech? Sh should get across the fact that this is something only you could deliver. And maybe that's by telling a story that connects with the subject or in some way qualifying yourself as the, as the bringer of this message or the teller of this story. And stories and speeches go, go over a lot better than statistics. Uh, so there's a lot more storytelling done in speeches now, by the way, than, than, um, than maybe 50 years, from, 50 years ago. 50 years ago, speeches were straight arguments. Now speeches are, are much more about, if you, it's part of the TED Talk trend, you know, connecting the human being who's giving the speech with the message. So an audience wants to know, why is this person giving this message 
Why is this person giving this message to me? Is this a message that this person could be delivering to any Tom, Dick, and Harry all over any anywhere? Or is this a message that has something to do with who I am and something that I know, something that I'm am I being spoken to individually or, or, or is this audience being spoken to especially? And then finally, is this an audience, is this a, a speech that could be delivered any time? Could this have been delivered the same way in 1940 or, or 1590? Or is this a speech that could only be delivered right now? Is there a reason we're here right now listening to this speech? If an audience feels that way, or even two out of those three ain't bad, um, an audience will not divert attention because it feels urgent, it feels personal, and it feels genuine. And uh, neither of those three things are people used to when they're sitting down and listening to speeches. So those, to me, are the tests of a speech. David Murray is the editor of Vital Speeches and is the director of the Professional Speech Writers Association of America. Thank you for coming on to Friday, David, and uh, explaining your love and giving us insight into the world of great oratory and great speeches. It was my pleasure. Thanks. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. just had my kids over from Canada with me in the Bay Area for four days and this track A Hell of a Night was written by my eldest Noah Tilson Brown
This month's Agora Network featured podcast is American Biography, a podcast by Thomas Daly, which is dedicated to examining the lives of important and influential but less discussed Americans who played an integral, if underappreciated, role in the evolution of the United States. Now, Thomas is somebody who I'm somewhat in awe of. He has got a brain the size of a planet. And he's a rather clever and engaging speaker. So if you want to delve into American history and don't just do the, you know, the big rock stars of it, your Roosevelt's and your Lincoln's and your Washington's, um, I highly recommend this podcast. It's called American Biography. Go and find it on a podcatcher of your choice. Feedback, feedback, give me feedback. If you want to email me, and possibly even get on the show, you can do that by emailing me at royfield at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm not great on the platform, but I am at Royfield on Twitter. And of course, you can go all the way over to Facebook and you can find Friday 15 there. Oh, one last thing. Be awesome if you could write us a little bit of a review on iTunes or on a podcatcher of your choice. See you all again in seven days time on another Friday. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex ultra soft tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex ultra soft tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.